0: And we're sort of at the tip of the iceberg and sort of really rethinking this idea of um, how do we trust people with our money? Mm-hmm. You know, due diligence tends to confirm our biases. And so really looking at the due diligence and, and how that might um, be on sort of the legal prescriptions of what the give and take looks like. How do we come to trust people?
1: This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Before we get into today's episode, I want to take a moment to recognize the talent, contribution, and character of Aspen Runkle. For the last two years, Aspen has been tirelessly promoting A New Angle, using her bountiful creativity and hustle to push out engaging social media posts every week. She's been a critical partner in this podcast, and today we say farewell. Back in May, Aspen completed her Master's of Science in Business Analytics degree and has begun an exciting job in consulting with Bridge Partners. Aspen, we thank you, and we miss you, and we're excited to watch you do great things. And so as Aspen moves on... I'll introduce you to AJ Williams. AJ is a graduate student in environmental journalism here at UM, and she's coming on as the first Consolidated Electrical Distributors producer. CED has long supported the show, and now we are able to channel their support to bring on an actual producer, someone with real journalism talent to help me professionalize the operation. So welcome, AJ. You'll be hearing more from her as we go. Okay. This episode is an important one. It covers a topic that you might not have considered. It's not difficult to find a lack of diversity and inclusion in many domains in our society. And one area in which the disparities are particularly glaring and undeniable is venture capital. It's essentially all white men. And that's a problem. Banu Azkazank-Pan is a professor of the practice in engineering at Brown University, She also directs the Venture Capital Inclusion Lab, a research organization working to educate VCs and policymakers on inclusion. She does cutting-edge research in this area and last year testified before Congress about her findings. It was great to chat with Banu, learn more about her work, and how some of the forces she's illuminating are affecting rural areas like Montana. I'm excited for you to hear from Professor Pan right now. Okay, so we're here today with Professor Banu Azkazank-Pan. Banu, thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Justin. I'm excited to uh, get to have a conversation on various topics.
1: Indeed. Really excited to learn more about your work. I want to set the stage by letting people know who you are. You are a Associate Professor of the Practice in Engineering at Brown University. You also direct the Venture Inclusion Lab Um let's talk a little bit about your professional history. I mean, we're going to talk generally today about the topics of diversity and inclusion in the venture capital space, but, um, maybe give us the, the quick picture of how you got into academia and and why this particular field of study.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's so funny when I get asked that question, um, If you were to ask me 20 years ago if I wanted to be an academic, I would say, what is that? Um, It was quite accidental. I was doing an undergraduate in psychology at Johns Hopkins. I really loved working with people. I had grown up pretty transnationally, so Mm -hmm. I was very interested in culture, getting to know different people, understanding their worldviews. I um, graduated and ended up working in a hospital setting with... um, Different kinds of, I would say, experimental drugs. I ended up in sort of this psych slash psychology domain, and really realized that many of the things that people were sort of suffering from were not individual but systemic. Hmm. And so that kind of was always bothering me, even though I was still working in a field um, of psychology. Um, I ended up staying in Baltimore, getting an MBA, and at that time. I was exposed to more sort of theories and theories about work and organization. I ended up having so many questions. One of my professors said, you have too many questions. You're not going to be happy. Have you thought of a PhD? And I said, no, what is that? You know, how does, what does that mean? And so it was really at that point that I considered a career in academia. I applied to programs, got into one that was very uh, good for me at UMass Amherst and the Eisenberg School of Management. And I ended up getting a PhD with a focus on sort of transnationalism. Hmm. And my dissertation was on entrepreneurs who uh, do entrepreneurship transnationally. And so I did quite a bit of my research in Silicon Valley, the rest of it in Turkey, looking at people who travel to do entrepreneurship. And in the midst of doing that, it became very clear that in the space of technology entrepreneurship, I kept talking to the same kind of people and they were mostly men and they were mostly uh, white. And it just kind of resonated with me to understand why it is that we keep seeing the same kind of people in certain spaces. Um, And so the dissertation pivoted towards really trying to understand these issues. And once I graduated, I really was more or less focused on issues of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in entrepreneurship, just trying to understand why inequities exist, how they exist, um, and if people even think of them as inequity. So that kind of ended up being a career that's been ongoing for about, gosh, ten or plus years since getting my PhD.
1: Sure. And, and when you say most of the people you encountered in this tech entrepreneurship space. I mean, we can all looking at some of the statistics you you cite in your research. I mean, you can almost say all. I mean, it's overwhelmingly <laughs> white men. I mean, we think we're thinking. Right. Thi- this is a moment in our culture where diversity and inclusion are, are especially salient and and for good reason. Um, but as you sort of dig into this entrepreneurship space and the funding and how the money flows into into new startup ventures, it is these are some striking disparities. I mean, you can't look at these numbers and, and, and in any way deny that there's a problem. So maybe paint the picture for us. What's the state of play with venture capital? And maybe maybe before we get into some of the disparities, just sort of describe um, when we say venture capital, uh, what we're actually talking about.
0: Yeah, so we're really talking about the venture capital industry, which has multiple components, but it really is a way in which funding flows to high potential high growth startups and of recent decades those have predominantly been clustered in the high-tech industry. Um, although there are other industries where high growth and high um, you know high profitability is possible it's just we've we've really focused on tech as the way in which um, most investments seem to be going So, as an industry, VC has been quite dominant, although its, its origins are much more humble, really. Mm-hmm. It's just a way to invest private money into potential companies that have um, an opportunity to grow, grow at scale, and to even disrupt certain industries, although the language around disruption is new. There are multiple components to that.
1: Yeah, and so, some, like you said, so much of the sort of um, public perception of of venture capitalism sort of is is centered in Silicon Valley and these big splashy tech startups. And we kind of have this, you know, uh, like what Scott Galloway calls the idolatry of, of tech innovate, tech innovators, like these, these CEOs almost sort of, or these founders almost take on these, these sort of media character personas. Um, But that's not where all of it's happening. Can you give us a sense for, you know, both in terms of the numbers of startups that are getting funding, but also um, in terms of the dollar amounts of the funding. Like, where, where, how is it kind of distrib- distributed across both Silicon Valley and then elsewhere?
0: Yeah. So currently, the majority of funding is on the coasts, as you can imagine, the left and right coasts, so the mm-hmm. west and east coasts, however you want to think about it, Um, and still the majority of it is in the Silicon Valley area. I think. Right now, the numbers are like 60% is in that area. Um, The rest of it is predominantly in the New England slash New York area. And everything else is pretty much scattered in the low teens to, you know, the single digits across the U.S. So the middle is sort of this gap in venture funding. Um, In terms of startups, you know, it is actually quite rare to be one of these unicorns. So everyone who uh, becomes one is pretty celebrated and well-known, but Mm -hmm. in reality, um, there's sort of what we call the valley of death, where between the growth and series A, a lot of high potential companies kind of um, end up going bankrupt, uh, not having a feasible product market match, uh, so various reasons. And what we're seeing right now is that, um, you'll hear this quite often, that the seed investment is where Series A was about a decade ago. And the Series A is where Series B was a decade ago. So when we talk about the VEC industry, there's sort of this quote unquote linear progression of the amounts of capital that you should be getting at each stage, including sort of the seed capital Series A, B, C, D, and above. And right now what we're seeing at Series A, which is typically when you should have some revenue, um, we're seeing million dollar investments. You know. We're seeing the growth of $50 million plus investments as being something normal right now, which wasn't the case. And it really kind of shuts people out who have these potential companies, but um, are simply getting left behind.
1: And so what you're describing there, does that mean the deals are getting bigger and kind of more concentrated, like smaller and bigger or fewer and bigger bets? Is that kind of the picture that that I can take away from that?
0: So the funds being raised are what we call uh, predominantly mega funds, 500 million or more. And the investments themselves are growing also in size. Um, They're not necessarily fewer of them. In fact, every year seems to be record-breaking. If you look at pitch book data. Um, And and I can share with you some stats around sort of what that looks like for women as well. When we say record-breaking for women, um, you know, 2018 was considered record-breaking for women. And record breaking for women means that women got around two point four percent of all venture backed uh, so women led companies got two point four percent wow of uh, <laughs> v c money yeah. which means um, you know ninety seven point three is, is that correct math ninety seven point six percent went to well male led startups
1: yeah so well, let's talk about that. So, like you said, you started digging into the space, and the disparities are glaring. You know, on gender. Um, what other dimensions of diversity are, are you looking at? And can give can you give us a picture of of um, some of those disparities and how they play out?
0: Yeah, so the other disparity that's pretty striking is obviously around race. Um, And in the US, we talk about race. In other countries, race is not the way in which people categorize themselves. It might be ethnicity or caste or religion. But in the US, it's race. So we'll use that. And in in terms of race, again, you see that around uh, 80 to 85% of um, investors tend to be white and male, Um, you know, investments going to black or uh, minority funded com- companies tends to be less than 1%. And, and these stats really haven't changed, right, over time. So when I say that it's a record breaking year, <laughs> it's relative, right? Sure. So, you know, funding right now for women is, um, you know, around 23 2.4%. And female founded firms account for around 5.4% of all VC invested firms. Um, for minorities, it's actually much, much less than that. Um, the other problem we have is a lack of sort of uh, consistent tracking and data gathering. So sometimes it's hard to figure out um, what those numbers mean and where we can get access to them if they're not aggregated consistently.
1: And so I'm trying to understand kind of where the problem Starts and stops to some degree, if that makes sense. I mean, one of the things that I've sort of been tangentially involved in here at the University of Montana is through our Blackstone Launchpad um, colleague that, that you know, Banu uh, Paul Gladen, led a group that got some grant funding from the Kauffman Foundation, who's funded some of your work, uh, to look at these gender disparities in entrepreneurship in the state of Montana one of the things we found through some survey work is that women in general, um, were much less likely to move forward at the, what we call the pre-idea stage. So it wasn't so much, it was many steps in the process before they even got to a funding decision or outcome. Um, they just were less sort of willing, able, or interested in, in moving forward or with an idea or, or less, less, um, less willing to say hey i do have an idea so the idea expression phase was where we were starting to observe some some disparities even then can you talk about sort of the process of 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 a startup and where some of these disparities are particularly um problematic
0: yeah so if you look from ideation all the way to execution and then sort of growth including funding there are some differences and and for me as a researcher, it's always interesting to understand the mechanisms that drive those differences. Are they differences simply based in biology? I don't think so. I think there are differences based in sort of some of the sanctioning that happens when women do express certain, um, you know, growth aspirations or um, have certain ideas. So on the one hand, I think there are differences, but I think differences are also embedded in social institutions. So, what's acceptable? You know, when was the last time we talked about a woman um, dropping out of college, becoming a successful tech entrepreneur? Right. That's not right. the narrative. Often, it is actually a very uh, sort of this myth of this heroic entrepreneur who did not need college, but sort of survived on their own, and, and it's always on their own. Um, women in general know that. Um, there's a tempering to their ideas. So this is why they're also pitched differently, but are often told to pitch aggressively Hmm. Um, while, you know, so in the pitching, we expect a certain kind of performance that tells everyone the scale, the market and how fast you're going to grow. And there's research that indicates that even during pitch contests, women get asked distinctly different from, you know, questions around, How they're going to mitigate risks associated with growth, Um, how they're going to prevent certain um, sort of challenges that they're going to potentially face. Where men are asked questions that we call promotion questions, right? Questions that say, well, how are you going to navigate this large growth? What are your aspirations to grow even bigger? So, even in the even, so rather than sort of thinking about, what might be different between men and women. I think it's also interesting to think about how we look at men and women and ask them certain questions um, with an expectation of how they answer.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting in the sense that it kind of reminds me of a dynamic that often plays out with political campaigns. I mean, it's a system designed by men, mostly white men um, or entirely white men, to determine who wins a political campaign, it largely rewards male traits. And what your uh, traits is, maybe not the right word, but but male-oriented behaviors. Um, and it's sounding like in in the pitch, the way the pitch system and expectations are constructed works very similarly.
0: Exactly. And I think this is where there's a bit of a nuance with gender. It's not men and women. It's also men who are not as masculine. Mm. Men who may present themselves as more feminine, they're equally sanctioned as not as competent. So there seems to be some equation of um, looking at people and how they react to questions and assuming a level of competence. Um, and that competence sometimes is based on fake confidence. You know, women often will move forward if they're truly confident, whereas men we've seen will move forward because they believe in themselves and that. Presents a sort of confidence, rather than necessarily reflect their com- competence.
1: Sure, we, we probably believe in ourselves because we have these giant tailwinds pushing us <laughs> forward. And another piece right? of it too is like in these situations, and I don't know if you have data on this, but everybody on the other side of the pitch is probably a familiar-looking white male, right? And so that has to create all these dynamics too. You're you're automatically otherized if you're. If you're female, you're identified as, as a different gender, or you are of a different race, or, or whatever, um, you're already sort of fighting some tailwind or some headwinds there.
0: Yeah, and it comes in multiple forms. It could certainly be sort of this, well, gosh, nobody looks like me um, approach, but it's also often also related to um, are these people who are known to you through your network, and a lot of times the ones who get to pitch regardless of, you know, we're not talking about contests that are much more public. We're talking about those private um, meetings. Those tend to come through warm introductions and referrals, which means that you are already in a network that has access to these people. That is distinctly different um, across race and gender in the U.S. So we tend to have homophilous social networks, meaning that the people in our network tend to be like us, So when you eventually end up in a room full of investors, um, the likelihood of you getting there through your network is quite difficult, but you had to have gone through several different nodes of people to get there. So you're linked to those people from, you know, multiple distances away, whereas traditionally, um, you know, connections through alma maters like Ivy League universities, I think 40 to 50 percent of investors tend to go to those schools, as do high you know, growth entrepreneurs. So there's that element, sort of the social network. And then there's also elements around, um, you know, thinking through the ways in which um, the norms of the industry actually reward that behavior, because there's this notion that well, others of you who came through the same pedigree did well, and there's a likelihood that it'll repeat itself. So there's this sort of false narrative that if we you know, throw a hundred spaghetti strands to the wall, one will stick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, we know that there have been some really poor investment choices in Silicon Valley.
1: Oh yeah. And so talk about kind of how you approach this area of research. I mean, it, it, it sounds like, you know, you've got, you're tremendously well-versed in, in, in the descriptive aspect. You can, you can describe these disparities and quantifying those has got to be a bit of a challenge. Um, in terms of research methods, how do you even sort of go about getting at some of these these mechanisms that you talk about? Um, whether it's analyzing the social network or or other aspects, kind of talk a little bit about your your, your methodology and how you get into it.
0: You know, numbers are important because they provide the scale of the issue, um, but I like to understand why those numbers are the way they are. So that means a lot of qualitative research, including interviews, observation, ethnographic work, shadowing, um, and and just uh, real engagement with the people whose stories you want to tell. So for me to be able to tell you how these things are happening, it means that I spend quite a bit of time um, interviewing, observing, and engaging um, in entrepreneurial ecosystems to get a sense of how these different actors are relating to each other and how their experiences are taking shape. Um, And what that also means is that when we do an ecosystem analysis, we can sort of say, hey, I'll use the example of Boston. Boston is such a resource-rich place. There's so much opportunity for networking events, platforms, educational opportunities around entrepreneurship, panels, discussions, workshops, paid programs, free programs. There's a plethora of investments and there's actually also policy support. Um, Boston's one of the few cities that has a women, um, women's business and entrepreneurship support um, office within the city. So, you know, that is a fact. But it's also a fact that there are multiple different ways in which people can or cannot access all these different parts of the ecosystem. And in order to tell that story, you have to have sort of what I call a different kind of lens for understanding an ecosystem. And for me, that's a gender and race lens. It's a curiosity that says, well, how might these issues make a difference? And and that's sort of my starting point. It's sort of a curiosity around how how come in an ecosystem as quote unquote, rich as this, There are distinct disparities that are ongoing. You know, why does that happen? And sometimes it's in these nuances that you pick up how those disparities happen and continue to happen.
1: A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hey, this is Jeff Petticord, and you're listening to A New Angle.
0: I can share an example with you. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, You know, oftentimes a startup that's tech or, you know, in the tech sector, it'll start with a couple of guys who have a good idea for tech enabled something or other. And when they want to grow, they look to those that they trust and they know. And that tends to be people in their social network that also tends to be um, men like them And they grow and grow. And at some point, they get to a point where they're being invested in. Um, And the investors tell them, you know, there are these things you need to do to grow. I had an opportunity to talk to a company that kind of went through this growth. And they were about nine people. And they were all white males. And I said, you know, I can't help but notice your company started. You're providing a service where your user base is about 90% female. But your organization right now is 100% male. Oh, I gosh. said, Can you tell me a little bit about that? And they're like, Well, <laughs> believe it or not, we tried to hire women, we couldn't find any. Um, do you and hear that a lot? Do you hear that
1: a lot? Like, I we have binders hear full that of women?
0: All the time. Yeah. And there are thousands of women in tech. It matters how you do outreach, how you, how you, um, how you kind of assess candidates? What you're looking for? Whether you're looking for cultural fit, and what even that means to mm, you? Um, yeah. How you're going about referrals? Um, and there seems to be in some companies sort of this juxtaposition of diversity and trust. They're almost, you know, opposing forces.
1: Interesting. Yeah.
0: And and you know, this wasn't something I was looking for. It's just I was very curious about. Did they notice this? And they did and they said diversity and inclusion is important but growth is more important and when we have time we're going to try to address the issue and right now our investors are pushing us to do x y and z and diversity is interesting and important but not enough for us to do something about
1: can we and talk I about i was
0: really curious yeah
1: can we talk about how the system sort of creates that mindset or that sort of, I mean, that has to be a response to a certain set of incentives. Can you talk about that premise?
0: Yeah, and, and to me it's fascinating because one, it says diversity is a nicety. It is not related to your growth strategy. In fact, it can in some instances even be seen as a distraction, right? And the reward is growth, a growth at scale, and profit and a return on investment for the investors. And the ideology there is that you're going to get that notwithstanding um, diversity. So the ideology for me has always been sort of trying to understand why um, there's this opposition to diversity of somehow getting in the way of things or creating a burden. Or, that or like, yeah, framing it,
1: framing it as a cost is such a it's just such exactly. problematic framing.
0: It's like an information cost that you don't have time
1: um, or even in this so sense like when, an operational cost like this you know once we once yeah. we once we actually are you know a growing business, we can afford to spend money on diversity it's just it's really it's it's just backwards and you could you could see that with that framing we're not going to make any progress we make is going to be limited
0: exactly, and that is something that comes from investors it impacts entrepreneurs um And so it's really trying to understand, well, where is that point for inflection for change? Is it changing the mindset of the entrepreneurs who have now taken investment money and potentially feel beholden or really, um, you know, an obligation to kind of follow through with the requirements of the investors, which, you know, to some degree, they're legally, they have obligations. Is it changing the frameworks that investors think about in terms of how they Invest their money? Is it sort of thinking about their investment logic and thesis and saying, you know, it's really based on these assumptions and maybe we should talk about those assumptions and see if they hold? Um, Or, you know, we can go another level and say, hey, is it the LPs? You know, is it these large partners, these institutional investors like foundations who are trying to also get a return and kind of not putting much pressure on the investors that they choose? to do anything with diversity and inclusion, which becomes really interesting when you talk about huge pension funds.
1: Yeah, so talk more about that, Like, draw that out. Why is is that a particularly problematic area?
0: Because pension funds, particularly in states, are are technically taxpayer money. So what you're doing is thinking about how that money is being deployed, one, to investors who may or may not be investing locally, and two, investing in a manner that doesn't really represent the interests or the identities of the people who are putting the money in. So there's sort of a very narrow benefiting that happens, um, interestingly, around how taxpayer money gets deployed and invested. Um, we're seeing some conversations around this. A lot of VCs that I've spoken to will say, you know, I am under serious pressure to have a return for the large, you know, folks who have invested with me. Go talk to them. I'm not the problem. (laughs) And then you talk to LPs and they're like, listen, we feel pressure to have a certain kind of return that our, you know, shareholders expect from us. Um, So then it kind of is this tautological argument of like, who's actually responsible for doing anything. And when you bring up sort of regulation around like an X percentage of funds must have an X percentage of their Uh, capital deployed in these kinds of you know startups like women or minority-led or some sort of group that's incredibly contentious in the U.S. although if you don't set any metrics or goals you will never reach them Mm -hmm. so we don't see change organically in the U.S. although right now we're at least seeing some conversations around racial equity.
1: Absolutely and and thinking about that, I mean, we start to see not only these conversations happening, but there's some there's some data that's that have demonstrated that you know in business you can get better outcomes with more diverse groups making decisions and more more people represented in, in, in conversations. Um, in the venture space, do we even have large enough sample size to um, to draw similar conclusions? Like, do we have evidence that 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 um, or do we even have enough observations to have evidence that diversity um, and inclusion with venture capital can make a difference in the quality of the, the, the venture investments?
0: Yeah, that is a, almost, you know, um, the newest conversation in sure. VC because so much of VC is in a private space. And while VCs kind of have been grappling with this issue around DI for, for a longer time, there's sort of real hesitancy to be the first to say, I think it's important and here's how we're committing to it. But at the same time, there is some small scale change in existing firms really rethinking their approach to how they um, assess and get referrals, how they on-ramp more diverse Partners and keep them, and how they think about the ways in which they deploy their capital. Are they putting aside a per- certain percentage? So, what I'm doing at the Venture Capital Inclusion Lab at Brown is we are actually following up with all the firms that signed the 2016 NVCA Diversity Pledge under the Obama administration. The National Venture Capital Association had a diversity pledge and certain number. Um, I think close to like 45 investors and investor firms signed it, pledging to do something around Mm -hmm. D&I. And it's been around you know, four or five years since that. So what we're doing is following up to see what has happened, what has changed, and what are some best practices. And we're seeing some bright spots.
1: Awesome. What are we seeing? Can you give us some examples of, of, of success stories?
0: Yeah. We are seeing sort of intentionality play out in One, how firms are thinking about bringing on partners, so much more intentionality and partnering with historically Black uh, universities and or creating internship programs, fellowship programs in partnership with um, either other firms or with um, sort of corporate entities. So there's a way to make sure that this person is paid Um, and then bringing them on and And then the next level sort of really reassessing how they um, promote partners um, into positions of making decisions about investments. So real sort of cultural assessment, I would say almost like an internal audit of who they are as a firm. Um, And then the next one is really looking at their investment thesis um, and, and how they're deploying capital and whether or not their returns are in line with what they expect. And for those firms that have made changes, the outcome has been positive. You know, when they have started investing intentionally in diverse founders, it has been positive. And the way they get to those diverse founders is by building a much more intentional and diverse network through, uh, like I said, HBCUs and other sort of uh, programs that allow them on ramps setting up office hours to intentionally take the time to meet with people they would otherwise not, Um, and really kind of attending events and and understanding the language around racial justice and equity so that they are aware of how their actions kind of fit into the bigger picture. So there is some movement, and this is besides sort of, um, you know, dedicated funds that have been set up by um, like Black entrepreneurs, like sure. Black VC, Harlem Capital. There's a whole plethora of those. But the number and amounts of funds deployed by them are still quite small.
1: Yeah, I think, it, so it seems like, what well, you described kind of two mechanisms for um, addressing the problem. One, you've got potential policy prescriptions, whether it's a pledge that organizations sign or investors sign. It could be a little bit more... Um, Explicit policy, you know, maybe there's policies that governments can co- or regulators can come up with around lending institutions or something like that. But then this notion of of yeah, a a, a venture fund that's specifically designed around investing in in a diverse array of groups, however they choose to um, operationalize diversity. Um, what are we missing? What other sorts of interventions are are out there?
0: Yeah, and we're sort of at the tip of the iceberg, and sort of really rethinking this idea of um, how do we trust people with our money. Mm-hmm. You know, due diligence tends to confirm our biases, and so really looking at the due diligence and and how that might um, be answered sort of the legal prescriptions of what the give and take looks like. How do we come to trust people? Um, I, th- I think some conversations that are needed around how we end up trusting people, especially if we're going to invest in them. And there's a lot of unspoken assumptions around the ways in which um, our background and the background of the person, their identity, their networks, their education have an impact on our ability to trust them and our ability to understand the market that they're trying to tap. For example, again, I'll use Boston. I've done substantial research there. There are a lot of white investors who While they like the idea of diversity, they don't understand some of the markets that are available to invest in because they simply have no experience. So you'll have an example of sort of a a young woman who is bringing technology together with the beauty uh, industry to have sort of an Uber for black beauty, Mm -hmm. right? And, and, the reality of it is white investors don't understand the market, don't understand its potential, don't think it's worth investing. When in reality, um, it's a huge market, right? So there's sort of this misunderstanding um, or lack of information. So they choose to not educate themselves or reach someone in their network who can maybe help them translate this. Right. So instead they pass on the offer. And then the narrative is, you know, there's not enough founders of color that we can invest in. When in reality, you were not asking the right questions and you were not educated in the market to understand the potential.
1: Yeah, the mechanism flows the the other direction. You know, Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, Montana, because what's happening uh, here, at least in Missoula, is, is real influx and groundswell of technology startups. I mean we got Lumina, we got submittable, we got ClassPass, we got Onyx Maps, some really interesting companies um, in various stages of, of venture funding. Some sort of have arrived, others are sort of on the cusp, um, and anything in between. Um, and we have a particularly homogeneous state. we the uh, we're not the whitest state, but we're the least black state. Um, we do have a significant um, percentage of the population are members of the tribal uh, tribal organizations and wondering what you know about how some of these forces manifest in more rural uh, areas or, or areas that haven't traditionally been um, havens for, for tech investment.
0: Yeah. So I think New Hampshire is the widest Montana's up there though. It's like 89.9%. Yeah. I looked yeah. it up. Um, about a third of business owners are female. And given the population, only 5% are minority business owners. Um, But what is happening, interestingly, is there is a shift from the coasts to the middle in terms of investors and tech startups coming, as you mentioned. And one of the most recent things that's happening is as investors move into areas where they are still interested in investing in tech, it still tends to be tech, because they realize all you need is a person, idea, and a cloud computing Mm. opportunity, Um, they start building infrastructure and they start bringing people. And so uh, one of the examples is an investor who actually moved to Montana and um, is interested in sort of funding startups in the tech space there, but is funding them in a manner that requires them to take on the similar kinds of problems that we saw on the other coast. So uh, similar debt structure, similar growth aspirations, and also bringing on board members that are known to this investor from other um previous investments
1: so sort of bringing the rules of the game from <laughs> silicon valley to montana is that what exactly. you're describing okay
0: exactly it's sort of an institutional theory right like yep. it's a great example of setting up an infrastructure and a set of norms and values uh, you know if you're into institutional theory this is how the rules of the game are being created exactly. except they were not built in montana So what you're gonna see is probably a replication of many of the problems we saw around not only equity, but also local development. Mm -hmm. You know, How are we going to think about that if the growth aspirations are not necessarily in the interest of the community, but they're much more global with an eye towards returns for investors. So it's really a question around the whole of the VC industry and what they're doing um, with it playing out in a very local and personal way in these communities. The other thing you'll see is as tech moves in, um, real estate prices go up. You tend to get more um, immigrant population, particularly from Southeast Asia. Moving in um, with engineering, that tends to be sort of also what happens. And, And you'll see sort of some tensions flare up because people are not accustomed to each other's culture or habits and have underlying sort of stereotypes and ideas about who people are in the world. But on the flip side, I think it's a real opportunity to understand that the U.S. is actually becoming a majority-minority you know, state overall, over time. And last year was the first time that the under-16 population was majority-minority. Mm-hmm. So over time, the U.S. is becoming um, much more diverse in terms of race and ethnicity. And rather than seeing it as sort of a threat, a real opportunity to kind of be a vanguard in how there could be new opportunities and new markets um, emerging, particularly in areas that were um, much more homogenous.
1: That makes sense. And, you know, what you're describing there, um, you know, bringing the rules of the game to new areas like Montana, it almost seems like a very sort of colonial approach. Like we know what works best and we're going to take our rules and impose them upon others. Uh, yet at the same time, opportunities for us to sort of if we know that's coming, you know, we can we can take active steps to kind of not necessarily mitigate it, it mitigate or resist, but 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 just understand those forces and, and maybe create different systems and different structures.
0: Absolutely, and I think that's sort of smart governance, right? And 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 a way to not create disenfranchisement. disenfranchised communities who feel that, you know, people simply moved in and started making money in communities that actually need that support. Um, You know, the ways in which we think about wealth in rural uh, communities is a little bit different. It's Mm -hmm. not only financial, it's it's human, it's social, um, it's community driven. And I think understanding that as another source of capital, and that not everyone needs VC money.
1: Well, that is for sure, Banu, It's been fantastic learning more about your work. I want to kind of be respectful of your time. It's after, well, after five o'clock uh, on uh, in your home of Providence. Um, but I do have one more question. So you testified about all this stuff in front of Congress last summer, is my understanding. I read your testimony, and um, but during the Q and A, what was the wackiest question you got? I mean, some of the questions that that come out of the mouths of some of these members of Congress lately are just head scratchers. Did you get any head scratchers?
0: You know, I didn't, I'll tell you, it was one of the most nerve wracking moments in my whole career. I'm sure. Um, but at the same time, um, what made me really happy is that it is one of the only functioning bipartisan communities right now. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so it is, it is by, one of the only functioning bipartisan committees. So, um, and so to me that speaks volumes about the value of DNI in investment, that it is something that everyone can rally around, which I think makes it much more powerful.
1: Well, and again, like we started the program, you know, you look at those numbers and they're just so glaring that you have to, I mean, it's, it's a problem you can't ignore. It's like one of those things that once you learn about it, you can't ignore it.
0: Right. Right. And it, it really impacts sort of the future and competitiveness of the US in the long run. So, you know, if out of no reason but economics, it's still worth pondering and fixing.
1: Right. We can all argue from a place of self-interest here. Um Banu, such a pleasure to uh to 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 chat over Zoom here. Thank you for sharing your time and wisdom with us. You're gonna engage with our uh one of our advisory boards a little later in, in the fall. And I, and I can't thank you enough in advance for that. How can people who want to learn more about your work find you online?
0: Yeah, a couple of ways. So I'm always happy to receive emails. Um, my email is banu underscore hyphen at brown.edu, or you can look up banu and Brown university. And there's only one of me. The other way is through the venture capital inclusion lab. It's VCInclusion.com, and you can reach me that way.
1: Awesome. Well, Benu, thanks so much. and look forward to our next conversation.
0: Thank you so much, Justin. It was truly a pleasure to be here and I look forward to our next conversation.
1: Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot with support from the University of Montana College of Business and Consolidated Electrical Distributors. AJ Williams is our producer. Jeff Ament, John Wicks, and VTO made our music. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at at umontana.edu. If you like what you heard, tell your friends about us. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.